From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. So if you were genuinely patriotic, if you genuinely love the country, and someone offers you a job that you know you're not qualified to do, you don't just take it. You should say no. That's Michael Lewis. He's the author of 15 books, including The Big Short, Moneyball, and Liar's Poker. His most recent book, The Fifth Risk, takes on the Trump administration. I speak with him about risk, civil servants, corruption, forest fires, and a lot more. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Betterment is the smart way to manage your money. It's the investing tool for people who won't settle for average investing. Because really, if there's one area where being above average is especially nice, investments are probably it. Plus, this is a time of year when a lot of people start to really feel the financial pinch. The tax year is wrapping up, the gift-giving season is upon us, which means it's a great time to maximize your money. Betterment's technology is designed to help you make more from your investments. They offer unlimited, expert advice to help you make smart financial decisions. And their tax-efficient investing strategies can give you an edge. With Betterment, you get constant access to information and tools so you can track progress towards your goals. Betterment offers low, transparent management fees, no matter who you are or how much money you invest. Investing involves risk. Betterment can be your guide. And now, stay tuned with Preet listeners can get up to one year managed free. For more information, visit Betterment.com Preet. That's Betterment.com Preet. Betterment. Outsmart average. Last week, federal prosecutors filed multiple memos on Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, and Michael Flynn. We also learned that Bill Barr would be nominated for attorney general. Today, Michael Cohen was sentenced. Investigations are ongoing. The news is not going to stop, nor are we. That's why we launched Cafe Insider, to help make sense of what's happening in the country, and we're bringing you more real-time, in-depth analysis in the form of new podcasts, a weekly newsletter, and more. On our most recent episode of the Cafe Insider podcast, Ann Milgram and I broke down the memos, Jim Comey's testimony before two House committees, and the expected nomination of Bill Barr to be Attorney General. To listen to this episode and experience the rest of Cafe Insider, become a member at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Okay, now let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. Justin from Delaware here. My question is kind of twofold. Given the recent charges brought against Cohen from your old office, Southern District of New York, how do you see that playing out? What are your thoughts on that? And second part to the same kind of question would be, you must be tremendously proud of the work that they're doing. And in moments like this, do you miss it? Uh, hashtag AskPreet. Love the show. Continue what you're doing. Thanks. Justin, thank you for your two-part question, which obviously was called in before the Cohen sentencing. We're recording this after lunch on Wednesday, December 12th. I don't have to guess at how it's going to play out because it just did in open court a few minutes ago. So you probably already know by now that Michael Cohen received a sentence at the hands of Judge William Pauley of 36 months or three years in prison. It's no surprise to me, given the briefing and given the seriousness of the offenses and given my you know personal experience with Judge Pauley, who's you know a fairly tough judge but fair, that Michael Cohen was going to get jail time which obviously must come as a huge disappointment to him and his lawyers, Guy Petrillo and Amy Lester and others, who advocated very, very, very stridently for a sentence of probation 
putting forward in their memo, and as we've discussed on the show, a portrait of a man who had reformed himself uh, and who had turned the corner and loves his family and now just wants to do good and right and be a law-abiding citizen. But as often happens in criminal proceedings like this, not so fast, because there's a whole you know, series of crimes to which he pled guilty, and months and years of conduct that was premeditated, even if some of it was as he and SDNY and now the judge sort of suggested, happened at the direction of the President of the United States. So there's something called the sentencing guidelines, the U.S. sentencing guidelines, and the range under the guidelines as applicable to his offenses, Michael Cohen's offenses, was 51 to 63 months. So what to make of the 36-month sentence that the judge imposed? Well, the government, the SDNY, had suggested that the crimes were serious, but given the nature of his cooperation, not with the SDNY, but with the special counsel's office, that they would be okay with and thought it was appropriate that Michael Cohen maybe get a modest downward variance from the 51 to 63 months. 36 months strikes me as a little bit more than a modest downward variance. So in some measure, I think he got off a little bit lighter than you might have expected. I thought he was going to get a little bit of a higher sentence, maybe, you know, 45 to 48 months. So 36 months in that context is not terrible if you do this work all the time. Obviously, it's a big blow to him and his lawyers because he'll be facing jail time. A couple of other interesting things. During the course of the proceeding, I understand Guy Petrillo, who I used to work with and have great respect for, took a shot at the office that he used to work in, SDNY, which I haven't read the whole transcript yet, but sounded a little unfair to me, saying that the Southern District was trying to make the case against Cohen bigger than it actually was. I don't know if I buy that. I think it's pretty significant. Judge Pauly is a fair judge, and though he didn't give him you know, close to 51 months, he gave him three years. That's a real sentence and real jail time. And since there's no more parole in the federal system, he will serve virtually all of that. It's also notable, maybe symbolically, if not as a practical matter, that the judge also, and it's less reported, the judge also gave him, Michael Cohen, a two-month sentence with respect to the charge he pled guilty to in the special counsel case. Remember, there are two cases. There's the, the case that SDNY brought with respect to tax fraud and other crimes, and there's the false statements on the Moscow project for which he pled guilty in connection with the special counsel investigation. And that false statement charge garnered him a prison sentence also, even though the guidelines range there was zero to six months. It's of no practical consequence because the judge mandated that those terms be served concurrently. So he'll only do the three years. I think it's sort of important symbolically that the judge nevertheless decided, notwithstanding substantial cooperation with the Mueller team and notwithstanding that Many people who are charged with such a crime, even if convicted at trial, get little or no jail time that the judge found it important to impose two months. One final point, perhaps, about Michael Cohen. I have wondered aloud, as have some others, why it is that Michael Cohen is agreeing to be sentenced now, even though he continues to cooperate, even though there's some aspects of his cooperation that have not seen the fruit that the special counsel's office expects, have not seen the light of day, there's no testifying at other trials. And the way that Michael Cohen's lawyer has explained it is that Cohen wants to get on with his life. He doesn't want to have to you know, twist and turn and wait for the months or years that might have to pass before all of his work and cooperation is over. The interesting thing is, and maybe I'm overstating it, but it just occurs to me in the few minutes after the proceeding, that Michael Cohen was not remanded into custody at the time of the guilty plea. That sometimes happens with dangerous criminals. And on the white-collar side, often a criminal defendant is permitted to surrender after he or she gets his affairs in order. And in this case, Judge Pauly said that he has to report for prison. 
uh, on March 6th. So that gives him almost three months to get his affairs in order. I mention that for two reasons. One, you might argue that if Michael Cohen really wanted to get this behind him, and some people do it, like, look, I pled guilty early, and I decided to cooperate early, and I wanted to proceed to sentencing right away. The best thing for me is to get that prison sentence under my belt as quickly as possible so I can be free and with my family. He didn't do that. The second reason I mention it is there is still the possibility, I don't know how likely it is, that we're not done and finished with respect to Michael Cohen's prison sentence. There is a rule of federal criminal procedure under which even after you've pled guilty, and sometimes even after you've been sentenced, that you can still get uh, the benefit of a reduction in sentence if you cooperate further. And so I don't know what the status is of his completion of cooperation with the special counsel's office. Maybe I missed it, but it sounded like they said his cooperation has been substantial. I don't know that they've said it's been fully completed. And as often happens in the world, which is why you have this provision of criminal law procedure, somebody is in prison or has pled guilty or has been convicted at trial, and then the prosecutor's office decides, well, we want information about crime X against person Y. Why don't we go back to this one defendant who we prosecuted? So it is still possible that sometime between now and March 6th, or even after that, Michael Cohen could strike some other kind of arrangement with the special counsel's office. It sounds like his cooperation is at an end, and SDFI had enough of him and don't want to use him for any further purpose. I'm less certain about that with the special counsel. So in all likelihood, he'll be reporting for prison on March 6th, but there's an outside shot that there's more here than meets the eye. Um, As to your second question, yes, I'm extremely proud of my colleagues. It still is the case that I hired most of the people who were over there. I know all the people who worked on the Cohen case and various other cases, some of which you read about and some of which don't get public attention. You You may have seen over the weekend, I got my back up a little bit, when someone who's on Fox News named Greg Jarrett took some shots at the AUSAs, he literally called them morons, and then separately suggested it should be against the law for people so young to bring criminal cases against other people, which is foolhardy and silly on a number of levels, which maybe I shouldn't dignify with a response, but maybe I will. (laughs) And among those things is, you know, the people who go to the Southern District, they're not perfect. You don't put them on pedestals. People make mistakes. People sometimes underreach, they sometimes overreach, they do the best they can. But if ever there was a group of people who were trying to do the right thing for the right reasons and making personal sacrifices along the way, this group fits that description. And as for being young, I think all the people on the Cohen case are in their 30s. As has been pointed out to me repeatedly, you know, the lawyers who worked on the Watergate matter were mostly in their 30s. The lawyers who worked on the prosecution of Spiro Agnew and took him out of office we're in their 30s. I believe that President Trump himself has a person who is not very skilled at the law and about understanding the courts named Stephen Miller is younger than most of those AUSAs. So this idea that you're not 70 doesn't mean you're not a great lawyer, doesn't mean you don't have great discretion and judgment. People who are young, they're energetic, they're idealistic, they have a lot of vigor, and that's one of the things I love and miss about the office. So good luck to them. Job well done. This next question comes from a tweet from L. Hunt, who asks, what might motivate Maria Butina to plead guilty? Seems like death sentence for her. Appreciate your thoughts. Love your show. Hashtag AskPreet. So you're referring to the person who has been charged by federal prosecutors for basically being a spy from Russia in the United States. Among other things, there's evidence that she has close contacts with members of the Russian government, has been involved in the United States in trying to ingratiate herself with members of corporate America, lobbying groups like the NRA and other public officials. So 
The fact that she's pleading guilty, I think, is significant. The fact that the reports are that she's not only pleading guilty, but agreeing to cooperate and give information about her associates and her conduct and other people's conduct is even more significant. So what motivated her to plead guilty? You know, it's hard to know. It's a personal choice, as we've been saying on the show for months and months and months. It could be that she didn't want to face jail time. She's a young woman, 30 years old. And the prospect of having less prison time is appealing to a lot of people on a cost-benefit basis. It also may be that the reason she's deciding to cooperate is that they really, really want information from her, and she's made some personal decision that it's worth doing that. I don't know if it's a death sentence for her. Presumably, she will stay in the United States. I don't know exactly what the deportation issue will be once she's done cooperating. It's a little bit harder to keep foreign nationals who cooperate and who are at risk of harm when they get deported back to their country. It's harder these days to keep them in the United States. It is true that it may be problematic for family that she has in Russia. People don't take kindly to folks turning into government cooperating witnesses. You know, I I prosecuted and oversaw prosecutions of Russian spies, most famously in 2010, the group of 10 Russian illegals, including Anna Chapman, who became famous at least for a few weeks. And they pled guilty and then were basically transferred to Europe by way of a tarmac in a neutral country where they were exchanged for spies that the Russians were keeping. I don't know that anything like that is in the offing here. I think it's very, very premature. I think there's no reason to speculate about that. The one thing that I I do think is interesting is that, remember, Maria Butina is not being prosecuted by the special counsel. And so it's really interesting to me to understand more clearly now that even though the Butina case has gone to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, we could see a replay of what happened with Michael Cohen, that she may not only be giving information that's useful to the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, but also, once again, incredibly useful information, whether about the NRA or about collusion or anything else. And she's in a particularly interesting spot to give that information because she's Russian, not an American. And so she gives the other sort of side of this. I think it's incredibly interesting to know that it's probably the case that if she's cooperating, she'll be cooperating with Mueller also. And who knows what that will lead to. So it's been a really busy week with lots and lots of news. And one bit of news that I think is very significant has almost been lost in all this discussion about the briefs and the memos and the sentencings and everything else. And that is, who is going to be in charge of all of this stuff going forward? And as you know, Matt Whitaker, who a lot of people think is not qualified to be the acting attorney general, will perhaps not have that job for much longer because President Trump last weekend announced his intention to nominate someone who was formerly the attorney general in the George H.W. Bush administration 25 years ago or more to be the AG, a guy named Bill Barr. And so my, my quick thoughts on Bill Barr are these. One, he's a very smart, capable lawyer. He has a reputation for being a smart, capable lawyer. He has a reputation for being an institutionalist, meaning he understands the traditions of the office, or at least did, uh, the DOJ, because he was, in fact, the attorney general. So he's not an outsider politician who has run for office. Uh, he might have particular ideologies. He might have particular conservative views. But he comes from the category of people who have served in high position in the Justice Department. And so it would be you know, a redo of his prior service. That is a reason to be optimistic, at least insofar as you believe that person cares about the rule of law and the traditions of law enforcement and cares about his reputation. And by the way, he's someone who doesn't have anything to prove. And I think these things are important as sort of an armchair psychologist because he's already had the job. So it's not like for him, 
And I worry about these kinds of people. It's not like for him, this is the crowning achievement of a career. He had the job when he was in his 40s, which is very impressive. So one would assume that that has some regulating effect on him and he cares about his reputation professionally and otherwise going forward. And so in the face of, this is my hope, my fervent hope, and I hope a lot, that in the face of being asked to do something outrageous or arbitrary or unlawful, he would have the wherewithal, having been in the high stakes position before and caring about his reputation, not to do that thing. Now, it is also true that there are things to be concerned about. He has made statements about investigating Hillary Clinton that I'm not sure how well-founded they are. He has made statements about the expansiveness of the executive branch. He has said some things about the idea that the president can, as a general matter, indicate what investigations he wants. And I would like to know a lot more about what that means and whether he's talking sort of generally when some catastrophe befalls a person or an institution or a community, does a president have the right to say that should be investigated, which is arguable? Or on the other hand, that the president can appropriately say, investigate and prosecute, not just investigate, but prosecute people who are his political rivals. That's a very separate matter. So I am maybe to some ears surprisingly optimistic and in part, that's maybe because we've, you know, we've lowered the bar, pun intended. And there's some relief that the nominee is not going to be, you know, someone like Janine Pirro or Chris Kobach or someone who's just, let me put it nicely, just really not right for the, not right for the job. The fact that there was a professional here who has a professional reputation, you know, I have pause, but I also have some cautious optimism because it could have been a lot worse. But I think it is absolutely important and essential that lots of representations are sought from Bill Barr during his Senate confirmation hearing about the Mueller investigation, about the separation of politics from law enforcement, about his view of the scope of executive power, and maybe his answers won't be good enough, and maybe there will be a concern, and maybe he's not the same guy he was, although I dealt with him professionally when I was in the Senate and he was the general counsel of Verizon and found him to be, you know, you know a decent, good lawyer to deal with people change. I have no reason to think he has changed. Once upon a time, Rudy Giuliani also was sort of above board and had certain qualities and that's changed a lot. So I don't have reason to believe that's happened to Bill Barr, uh, but we'll see. And I think the Senate confirmation hearing can't be glossing over these issues. One final point on what this means for the Russia investigation. I can't believe that Donald Trump would have agreed to nominate someone without an assurance that that person would not recuse himself from the Russia investigation. That's the reason he was so mad at Jeff Sessions every day that he was in office. On the other hand, there has been some reporting that Bill Barr interviewed to be one of Donald Trump's defense lawyers. Now, I don't know how far that interview went. I don't know how much information was exchanged. I don't know if it's even true. And I think that would raise a legitimate question as to whether or not that would compromise him if he heard attorney-client privilege information, even in connection with a job interview. That's significant and would bear on the question. So I don't know enough about that to say, but obviously that's something that has to be explored. But I can't believe that Bill Barr was asked to do this job unless Donald Trump felt very strongly that he wasn't going to recuse himself. And maybe he will have to ultimately there too. And God bless him if he does and good luck to him. <laughs> but I think we'll have to wait and see. And I think the hearings are going to be very, very, very important. My guest this week is Michael Lewis. He's the author of 15 books on subjects ranging from sports to Wall Street to Washington. And they have some common themes. Corruption, brinksmanship, hubris. His new book is The Fifth Risk. It's a look at what happens to the federal government when the people at the top don't know or care how it works. 
I speak with him about the dedication of civil service workers, Trump's attack on trust, and the dangers of willful ignorance, and his favorite quality in a person. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Want to make sure nothing comes between you and protecting your family this holiday and save hundreds of dollars while you're at it? You need Simply Safe Home Security. If a storm takes out your power, Simply Safe is ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. Say they destroy your keypad or siren, Simply Safe will get you the help you need. And look, maybe that's overkill. Maybe home security is the last thing you want to think about this holiday. But with Simply Safe, you're always ready for anything. Simply Safe doesn't cost an arm and a leg. It could, but it doesn't. Just $14.99 a month. No contracts, no markups, and there's no installation window. It's so easy, you'll have it up and running in just minutes. We all have so much to be thankful for. Protect your home and family with Simply Safe. And today, you can save hundreds of dollars on that protection if you go to simplysafe.com slash preet. That's simplysafe.com slash preet. Make sure to use that URL, because that's how they know we sent you. But hurry, this holiday offer is ending soon. simplysafe.com slash preet. Michael Lewis, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. A uh, longtime fan, first-time caller, as they say. So you've written a lot of books. I think you've, this is, you're up to 15, is that right? Uh, you know I, know, I never really count them. Well, we count. I'll trust you on that. My folks counted, and it's 15. And we're going to get to the book in a minute called The Fifth Risk, but I, I thought I'd ask you a broader question about sort of the body of your work, and I'm a huge fan of it, and I've read a lot of your books, and so thank you for your service to the public through your writing. But you've sort of written about corruption and malfeasance in multiple areas, in sports, in business, Wall Street, and in government. Is there, have you found through all the work you've done and investigation you've done that, that there's a difference in how things go wrong in the different areas and some things that are the same? Or how do you think about that? Are, are those distinct areas or not? So I'm spitballing here because this isn't something I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Like, That's perfect for a podcast. And, but the, what I'd say is in each case, you know, so I haven't really written about corruption in sports much. I, but, I mean, I've written about you know, like inefficiencies and stupidity in sports. It's a little different. Yeah. Uh, but, but I would say that as a rule, it is amazing how even the most corrupt people don't think of themselves as corrupt. So when I write about people who seem to me obviously villainous, right. and it seems obvious to any neutral reader that they're villainous, they themselves don't agree. <laughs> and so it's not like there are a bunch of people in each sphere who are wandering around saying, oh, I'm going to make a lot of money being corrupt. What happens instead is people just follow incentives. I mean, I think if there's like a pattern to what leads people to either both stupid behavior or corrupt behavior is that there's some little carrot out there that they're following and they just don't stop themselves. And, you know, the, the run up to the financial crisis, whatever laws were broken and probably not enough laws were broken. I mean, it was really a case where an awful lot of stuff that happened that was awful was perfectly legal. But, but there are people inside these big Wall Street banks who are doing unbelievably self-destructive and socially destructive things while themselves being very efficient in maximizing their self-interest. But why is it that in all those places, the same incentives exist, whether you're talking about sports or you're talking about business, or you're talking about government, so people can you know, do the wrong thing, 
but not everyone takes advantage of those incentives or, or, or follows those incentives. You know, there's, so this is a really great question. Like why some people do and why some people don't. Yes. So solve that for us. I, if you could solve that problem, we would have no problems. <laughs> no. Uh, you know, so what's the answer to that? Why is it that when a mob moves in one direction, some people are able to step outside it and say, this is wrong. Let's not do that. I mean, because in most cases, what's happening, I mean, the financial crisis is, again, a very good example. Everybody, pretty much, is following these bad incentives. And it's really only a handful of people who are in the inside who say, "Now nah, let's not do this. And if they do say it, they, get, they tend to get trampled. But the quality in the person who behaves well, even when the world's paying him to behave badly, I'd say, you know, this is going to sound trite, but if there's one kind of uh, unifying trait in the characters I've written about who sort of stand apart, uh, it's they still hear their mama's voice in their heads. <laughs> they were sort of, they haven't become so detached from who they were when they were little kids when their mom was trying to raise them and their dad was trying to raise them. that They, they, they hear that voice and they kind of like, eh, say no. That's the closest thing I can find to an answer to the problem. It's like, raise them well and stay in, your, in their heads. So it's basic stuff, right? You know, so very basic stuff. And you know what's the other the other interesting thing is, especially, you know, let's take another case, like the Flash Boys story, where you've got essentially the stock market getting rigged. Thank you, stock exchanges, uh, who figure out that they can make more money uh selling advantages to a handful of privileged people, the high speed traders, uh, than they can just matching buyers and sellers in a neutral way. And this whole elaborate ecosystem gets generated really to basically fleece ordinary investors to skim off the trades of ordinary investors and then you have a couple of people inside of royal bank of canada who find out what's going on and instead of joining in the party they decide to set up an honest exchange you know why do they do that and it's the funny thing is it's such a stark case case of sort of like private sector heroism. You would think that the people who do it are self-consciously heroic or self-consciously moralistic or righteous. But getting those guys to say anything nice about themselves is extremely difficult. They're very uncomfortable if you start talking about them. Well, that's very funny. It's just sort of like how they naturally were. They don't like to, th- they don't like to think of themselves as the good people. Well, what was funny about that is you first said that the corrupt people don't think of themselves as corrupt. The good people don't think of themselves as... Now I'm saying the good people don't (laughs) think of themselves as the good people. You know, it's... So people just do. Because because anybody who's really good isn't spending a lot of time dwelling on his own goodness. So it's about habit and good parenting. I think, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think some people, you must have run across this in your previous life, a lot of people get into bad situations or do bad things because they've got some hole to fill. There's a neediness about them. And... A lot of the characters who I've admired who stood against corrupt or inefficient or broken systems are people who don't actually have a great neediness. Like they didn't need me to write a book about them. Uh, When I smell someone like really wants me to write a book about them is when I lose interest. So all my characters have been kind of like wary and different. They don't care all that much what I'm writing. They're not asking me to see the manuscript. None of that. Because they really sort of like, they have some detachment from themselves. And... And they are who they are. They know who they are, and and they aren't they aren't looking for the world to to tell them that who they are. Is that confidence, or is that just um, 
being comfortable in your own skin or is it's that the kind same of thing? A, you know, it's a combination of things. I think it's related to confidence, but it's a sort of self-possession. You know, some people seem sort of self-possessed. I can remember when I was in, must have been like middle school when I heard a teacher refer to one of my classmates as self-possessed. And I thought, what the hell's that? And then I kind of looked it up. And I thought, well, I, I want to be that. I don't think I've ever quite gotten there, but you meet people who just sort of like, they just, there's a kind of armor around them. And Billy Bean's this way, Brad Katsuyama's this way, a lot of the guys in, in the big short are, are this way, and it enables them to sort of stand back from the world a little bit, rather than do the things the world is encouraging them to do that might not be so good. I'm going to play this portion of the podcast for my daughter, who's 17, because I have called her self-possessed and so i want her to appreciate how much of a compliment <laughs> it's a huge that compliment. that is i mean it's like one of those qualities that i mean it sort of might be my favorite quality uh in a person because it leads to all these other things it leads to not getting swept up in the moods of the moment and it, it leads to kindness towards people who are sort of ostracized and on the outside it leads yeah. to it leads to generosity because you it's just kind of an, an awareness because you're not when you're not self-possessed when you're sort of looking for the world to tell you who you are and looking at the world for constant affirmation, looking at the world to fill you up because you've got this hole inside you, you just cease to notice much, I think. And you just do, right. And just one more point on this, then we'll move on to your book. So self-possession is different from courage because some people have said famously that courage is the most important quality because other good qualities spring from that and good behaviors spring from that. But it's not courage. Courage is something, it sounds like you're saying is too um, self-referential and too self-conscious. Self-possession is just, you don't need other folks, and so you have the clearer path and you go and do the right thing, you know, as opposed to having to put on sort of a brave air of, of fearlessness, which is what we think of courage being. Yeah, well, I think people, right for a start, they sort of misunderstand courage in the first place as an absence of fear. When Courage really is a sort of overcoming a fear. And courage is a... It can be there sometimes and not there other times in the strangest ways. I mean, like in the Red Badge of Courage, the, the, the protagonist is a hero one time and a coward the next, and it's the same character. Right. And I think that's probably, I bet, I bet people who've spent a lot of time in battle have seen this, that you, know, you don't never know what's going to provoke courage in a person. But so your, the answer is correct, but I think you know, you're probably more likely to be brave in situations if you're also self-possessed. I think that's a good analysis. So your book, The Fifth Risk, explain to everyone what The Fifth Risk is. Let me explain it this way, how, the, how I came up with the title. Twice when I was working on the book, which is about essentially the, the risks posed by the Trump mismanagement of the federal government, I asked people to, to list for me the top five risks they were worried about. Once it was in the White House and once it was in the Energy Department. And the first time a woman in the National Security Council said... You know, it was like terrorist attack with a nuclear weapon, a pandemic, two na natural disasters at once that overwhelmed the country. And she got to five and she couldn't think of the fifth. And I thought that was kind of cool that she had had four in her mind, but she couldn't think of what the fifth was. And I got to the energy department. I was talking to the chief risk officer of the Department of Energy, a fellow named John McWilliams, who'd come out of the private sector, was a Goldman Sachs banker. And he'd, he'd cataloged all the risks in the energy department. I said, give me your top five. And he said you know, Korean nuclear capabilities, uh, the Iran deal falling apart, the electric grid going down or being attacked. And, and the other one was, I think, a loose nuke or something having to do with a nuclear arsenal, which the energy department oversees. And I said, what's the fifth? And he said, I 
it took him a long time to think of it. And then he finally says program management. But what I actually thought of the fifth risk as, it's not as program management. I thought it was the thing that's hard to think about. Because the federal government, when you step back from it, is managing this vast portfolio of risks, many of them existential. And at any given time, we may be focused on one or two of them. But this bureaucracy is managing many of them. And it's the ones that we're not paying enough attention to is the ones that are going to get us in trouble. So that's what I thought of it as. I thought of it as the, the risks we are not paying sufficient attention to. Well, if you can't think of them, then how do you pay attention to it? Well, you can think of them. You just, you know, you don't, you just don't spend a lot of time thinking about what happens if the whole, the $3 billion research and development budget inside the Department of Agriculture is so mismanaged that we don't have a food supply 30 years from now. You just, you don't think of what happens if um, the people who test our nuclear arsenal don't do their jobs well, or if some loose nuke is floating around Eastern Europe and the person in the energy department who's supposed to run down loose nukes is taken off the job because Trump thinks it's not important. I mean, they just, you know, it's one thing after another. It's not that you're not thinking about it. It's that the system as a whole isn't thinking about it properly. And I think this is the problem we face is that we've got a unique in my lifetime and probably in the history of the country, you've got someone in the White House who is absolutely ignorant of the government he's meant to be managing. Well, I mean, is it true that the fifth risk, you know, given your um, nomenclature, tends to be the long-term risk? It's the easier one to ignore, not because it's less dangerous. I, I, I think that's a really good point. And I think that this is, it's these, the reason the guy at the energy department said program management was he was, th- what he was thinking was, we have these very long-term problems that we're managing. I mean, the most obvious one is climate change, but but he was thinking more narrowly than that. But very long-term programs we're managing that require constant attention and they aren't sexy or dramatic, but if they go wrong, they can go very wrong. And I, you know, as an example, he offered the Hanford Waste Cleanup in eastern Washington. The United States government in during World War II created a plutonium manufacturing business, the plutonium for the bombs that were dropped in Japan. And the, they were working so fast that they paid no attention to the waste product. And millions and millions of gallons of incredibly toxic stuff was poured into the, into the soil on a site that's kind of 600 square miles. And there are plumes of just lethal radioactive waste moving towards the Columbia River. And the Department of Energy spends $3 billion a year trying to both clean it up and prevent the stuff from getting into the river. And if you ask, you know, these people who are doing it, honestly, uh, how long this is going to take and what it's going to cost, they say $100 billion in 100 years. And that's, it's, it's an awesome, awesome task. And the cost of not doing it well is, is very, very high. But it's like nothing much happens day to day, so no one pays it much attention. Right. And in the incentive structure you spoke about earlier means that you don't get a lot of credit for it if you deal with it now, because nobody's really thinking about the problem anyway. And so if things go fine, nobody's being incentivized to take care of those things. Now, to the extent you are not self-possessed and you care about doing things because people will pat you on the back. There's no pats on the back for that kind of thing. Well, so this is a really good point. That the, Just generally, our attitude towards our federal workforce is so screwed up because all we do is abuse them. There's lots of downside, no upside. And it, this, ha- this creates several problems for the country. But apropos of your, this example, 
there's a fellow in Colorado who has handled a similar problem uh, in Rocky Flats, Colorado. It wasn't as big a waste cleanup, but I think he brings it in at like $15 billion under budget and 30 years ahead of schedule. Something <laughs> that if he'd done it in the private sector, he'd be a billionaire. He should, he should build hotels. And no one knows his name. <laughs> I, mean, and, I mean, no one's ever heard of him. The, there are people in the civil service who perform extraordinary feats and no one hears their names because there's no real upside. They don't get paid a lot of money. Nobody pats them on the back. And of course, what this does is on the level of the individual is it creates huge risk aversion. If all you're going to do is be punished for the bad things and not rewarded for the good things, you're not going to take risks you should take. And you see problems that caused by this. I mean, the Department of Energy well, actually, across the government, there are interesting investment funds, uh, funds that are not big piles of money, but funds that are designed to channel money into very long-term research that industry won't do. So in the Department of Energy, this would be in the energy space. And these funds have helped create the solar power industry and the wind industry. But these funds, the people who manage them, they're supposed to take the kind of risks that will fail half the time or more. And they don't. They manage it too responsibly kind of thing. Because if, it, if something fails, they end up in the newspaper. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, maybe the biggest reason I wrote the book, is I came away from my travels inside of the Trump administration awed by the caliber of the person who was in the civil service. I, I didn't have any sense of who these people would be. And it was incredible to me over and over to find these people who were very mission-driven, who could be making a lot more money in the private sector, but who saw the crying need for a person of quality to be in these job, very important jobs in the federal government. And, and I thought, you know, these are the best among us, and they need to be celebrated. And the country needs to change its narrative about who these people are and why they're there and what we think of them, because otherwise we're all doomed. Otherwise, essentially, we're going to get the government we think we have. And we're going to get a government that's horrible. I, I love the fact that this book is, quote unquote, a love letter to federal workers, many of whom I know. But So who's the guy who should have said, let's rake the forest floors to prevent wildfires? Well, that's funny. So Robert Bonney, who makes a very brief appearance in the book, I mean, this shows you how, this is an example of the fifth risk. I'm wandering through the Department of Agriculture, asking people basically what do we need to know about this place what are the risks we need to worry about and i get to robert bonnie who ran the forest service uh, and the forest service is inside the department of agriculture and he says to me wildfires and he says this is a really really big deal and nobody's paying attention to it and this is two years ago yeah and i i went out to the wildfire the center of for fighting wildfires is out in boise idaho i went and spent a day there i thought i was going to write about that I thought nah this will never happen it's, and i just kind of i kind of dropped it so all you have is this kind of one line he says wildfires and then i move on from him you know that was something that we obviously were not paying sufficient attention to and we're, we're paying a price so he he did have things that he thought we should do but he also had a sense that the Trump administration was so inept that they weren't. That there was no one, to, no one even to tell these things to. So you start out the book talking about the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration and how all this effort had been made, and binders were being filled with memos, and people were documenting things so that there was a transfer of expertise and a giving of information about ongoing projects, so there would be continuity, 
and Chris Christie sort of appointed himself the head of the transition, and then it all went to crap. How'd that happen? Yes. Well, this is, I think, a story that can't be told too often or in too much detail, because <laughs> by law, both the outgoing president and the incoming administration are required to spend many, 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 many months before the election preparing for this transfer of power. Because, you know, our our government is not like other democracies. It's run by it's run by political appointees. There isn't a permanent civil service at the top. At the top are 4,000 people the president appoints. And these people have to manage these places. And very often they're, they're not suited, they're appointed for political reasons and they're not terribly suited to the jobs. In the Trump case, that's, an extreme, that's very true. But they can learn, right? And that's why the outgoing administration spends, takes 1,000 people, smart people, and has them spend six months preparing to teach the people coming in what they're dealing with, because most of these things are not ideological matters. Right. You know, the Center for Disease Control is going to tell you how they dealt with the Zika virus so that if it happens again, you at least know how they dealt with it. And it's that sort of thing. It's their technical matters. And the Trump administration, I mean, it was really extraordinary. There was a transition team, hundreds of people waiting to go in the day after the election. And the day after the election, Trump fired the whole operation. So there was absolutely not a soul there. And so you had this strange picture of people waiting across the administration on the Obama side in the Department of Energy, Agriculture, Treasury, Defense, everywhere for people to show up so they could say, this is what the government's doing. And nobody shows up. And it's so bad that so I finished the fifth risk. I finished writing the book in oh August. So I probably got my la- I went and got the briefings right. So in July I probably had my last briefing. It, it was a serious thing. It was in the National Weather Service, and nobody had been given the briefing before. I found myself over and over getting these briefings that no one had been given. Yeah, you should go into the government. <laughs> you probably could solve a lot of stuff. <laughs> well, I now you know what I do know is that if you have a willingness to learn. And listen, you're already better qualified than most of the people he's put in there. Because they didn't, not only did they not know anything, they were dismissive and contemptuous. They don't care to know anything. So there's no way you can go in and run the operation like this. I'm no, I would be no good at it. I'm, I have no administrative abilities. I'm just a Well, runner. I don't know about that. But I, can, but, but I know 100 people who would do it great. And it's, the, it's sort of like the knowledge is there. You just have to want it. Yeah, I mean, you, you say an interesting thing. You say, look, there were all these people who were prepared to teach. And they had a curriculum, you know, in terms of those binders and memos and everything else. But that's not enough. The people who you're trying to teach have to be educable. That's exactly right. And, you know, they tell themselves, and I'm sure their supporters tell themselves, oh, what can we learn from the Obama administration? Or what can we learn from the deep state, these permanent civil servants? As if they've got some whole other plan about how to run the society. When the truth is they've basically got no other plan for how to run the society. And they really do need to know all this stuff. You wouldn't have this issue in city government, right? So you have one outgoing administration in a big city in the north, let's say, and an incoming administration. You would think the incoming administration would want to know how it is you clean snow effectively. Because that's the down, you know, as the old adage goes in New York, if you can't clear the streets of the snow, you're you're not going to get reelected. Why is it different in the federal system where people think of this as the deep state and think they, they know better and they don't have to learn from other folks? When, as you say, so many things that happen in the government, whether it's forest fires or preventing disease or anything else, is not at all partisan or ideological. It's, I think it's as simple as it's really complicated and it's a long way away. Everybody's got the city right under their nose. If the trash doesn't get picked up, you notice that day. Right. Uh, but if underbrush isn't being cleared in national parks or if uh, 
the nuclear weapons aren't being properly assembled. You might not find out for years. So it's just, I think it's a matter of the public's attention. And I think there's also this, this other problem of the whole country needs a civics lesson. That, that we've, civics is just, the idea that you're supposed to understand how your federal government works has vanished from the educational system. And, you know, I found, I mean, I live in Berkeley, California, and I'm surrounded by people who are obsessed with national politics. I mean, I was so obsessed with national politics that they might not notice that their garbage didn't get picked up that day. <laughs> I mean, I was going to, I have a file, I have a file of a piece I've never written. It's called, Why Does My City Council Have a Foreign Policy? And so here of all places, people you would think would really know about how the government works. But when I would be at lunches or dinners or wandering around the streets of Berkeley and people would ask what I'm working on, I'd say, uh, oh, you know, I'm writing something about the energy department. And basically I get a blank stare back. Like, what does that do? And, you know, oh yeah, they're in charge of the oil reserves or something. But in fact, it's the Department of Nuclear Weapons. And I didn't, right. you know, one of the reasons I was so engaged with the subject is I didn't know. Uh, I had no idea what went on in the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Commerce. So I think we've had such a long period of relative peace and prosperity that there has not been the urgency to know. You, um, you make a very important distinction that I want to make sure we crystallize even a little bit more in the time remaining. And that is, it's not just that people come in and do a bad job being in charge of certain things, whether government agencies or companies or anything else, because they lack expertise. It's also because they lack this, this will to learn and they have a disdain for it. And so one, one of the departments you talk about is the Department of Energy, which is run by Rick Perry. And I just want to read you my favorite description of the heads of that department from the New York Times, maybe a couple of years ago, and then ask you a question. And they're describing Rick Perry's predecessors uh, in an article in the Times by Coral Davenport and David Sanger. I should give them credit because it's one of the best juxtapositions that I've seen. Before Mr. Moniz, the job belonged to Stephen Chu, a physicist who won a Nobel Prize. For Mr. Moniz, the future of nuclear science has been a lifelong obsession. He spent his early years working at the Stanford Linear Accelerator. Mr. Perry studied animal husbandry and led cheers at Texas A&M University. <laughs> so making clear that he was not as qualified, was not a Nobel Prize winner, but couldn't Rick Perry or someone like him still be good at the helm of an agency about which he or she does not have a lot of expertise if they had some different quality? Absolutely. You know, I don't think you have to be a nuclear physicist to run the Department of Energy. And in some ways, it might be a little bit of a handicap because you might get too much in the weeds and stuff when you should delegate. But what you do have to have is a basic respect for the institution and respect for the, for the knowledge. And Rick Perry, I mean, my God, this man as a presidential candidate got on stage as governor <laughs> of Texas and called for the elimination of the Department of Energy and then couldn't remember its name. In a public forum, he, he said we needed to get rid of this agency and he clearly didn't know what it did. And then when he gets to Washington and gets offered to run it, he goes and he's told what it does and he goes, oh, I was wrong. Sorry about that. I mean, that should be disqualifying right there. And I, you know, one of the things that has surprised me about many of the Trump appointees, and Perry is an example of this, is that if you were genuinely patriotic, if you genuinely love the country, and someone offers you a job that you know you're not qualified to do, you don't just take it. You should say no. 
right. <laughs> you should say, actually, I don't know anything about this, and I embarrass myself on a public stage calling for the elimination of this place. Really, someone who has a who can start with a cleaner slate should come in and do this. I, but I do think, having said that, it's absolutely true that someone who's got great managerial ability and ability to get their minds around things very quickly and get to the nub of complicated matters very quickly and find good people a- around him, I mean, that person could do a great job. What about uh, Wilbur Ross at the head of commerce? He's 83 years old and falling asleep in meetings. <laughs> I mean, it's... That's it, okay sometimes. <laughs> it's okay. Well, all right, let's go. We'll take it one step further. <laughs> okay. He's not only falling asleep in meetings, but when people come to him and say, you know, Wilbur, this isn't actually a, a department of commerce. That, you know, it's not, it's not allowed to do business. And it actually isn't even all that important in the trade negotiations, which I think he thinks that's what he's going to do. What it actually is, is it's a department of data. It, it's the census, it collects the economic statistics, and the whole weather service is inside of it. All the weather data is in it. All the climate data is in it. And, and he says, yeah, I'm not all that interested in that stuff. 90%, 95% of the department's budget is basically the, the collection and analysis of data. So he's not interested in it. Uh, that, that's not, it's not a promising start. Let me hit a couple other things quickly before you have to go. You, you have said lots of different people try to analyze what it is that Trump does to institutions. And you've called him a trust devouring machine. You know, he takes things that people still have trust in and undermines them. Institutions, we talk about the press, we talk about the government, we talk about, you know, folks who are in the civil service. Um, he's done that with the, with the media, as you've written. What does that mean for him and risk to financial markets? And as we tape this, it's not going so well on Wall Street. Um, he was very lucky to inherit a healthy economy in, in a kind of a good spot. To answer your question, I'll tell you what I'm most worried about. And it's that he really does have a nose for, he, he doesn't just devour the trust. He sort of feeds on it in some odd, sick way. And if you look around and you say, well, where is there still quite a bit of trust left in the society that he might undermine? The natural place is the dollar and, and treasury securities. And it's very easy to imagine him when things get bad, when uh, the stock market's doing poorly, when the economy starts to not look so good, when interest rates are going up and the deficit, again, we start talking about. I mean, it's amazing we haven't, we're not talking about the deficit. But in any case, I can easily imagine him freelancing in some arena in Alabama. And he says, you know, they talk about the deficit, but who do we owe that money to? We owe it to the Chinese and they stole it. And he said, we don't have to pay that back. It would be so in character. And it would also be in character uh, of his audience, of his fans, to stand up and cheer. We're not going to pay the Chinese back. We own 2 or $3 trillion. They're sitting on all these treasury securities. And that, it's a, it's a hard technical matter just to selectively default like that. And probably you couldn't do it. But you wouldn't even have to. That The minute he found a political market for that view... He could create a catastrophe, a financial catastrophe. That, I worry, when people ask me, where does the next financial crisis come from? I think it comes from Trump. And, and the question is how? And this is one path. So is, and, that a fifth, is that a fifth risk or is that a fourth risk? No, it's totally a fifth risk because nobody's, <laughs> right. as far as I know, I'm the only one talking about it. <laughs> right. But, but well, it's, I'll start talking about it too. Play it out in your head, Preet, because you know yeah. what happens is that the minute that, that you have questions about the credit worthiness of the United States and about uh, the soundness of the dollar... I mean, about people wanting to hold the dollar as a reserve currency. I mean, this is the natural thing that follows from the U.S. 
ceasing to be the leader of the free world. I mean, why? there's no good reason why we should be the financial leader of the free world. And I, I think we're not that far away from that kind of scenario. And, when, and it's a different sort of financial crisis that provokes because, you know, in the, in the 2008 financial crisis, you had an entity that could step in and calm everything down, and it was the United States government. Right. When you no longer have that as a backstop, what happens? All you have is kindling. Yeah. Michael Lewis, congratulations on all your success. Congratulations on the new book. And thank you for spending some time with us. Thanks, Preet. Bye-bye. So this is the point in the show where I talk about something that happened in the news, maybe was undercovered, and that is important to me. And this week, I know there's a lot of stuff going on in a lot of areas. But for me personally, and hopefully this affects your lives too, in ways that you'll appreciate in a moment, I finished writing my book. If you follow me on Twitter or listen to the show on a regular basis, you know that I've been sort of slaving away, writing a book on justice, on some of my experiences and how I think the right thing can be done in criminal proceedings and also just in life and institutions. The title of the book is Doing Justice, A Prosecutor's Thoughts on Crime, Punishment, and the Rule of Law. I've worked really hard on it. It's been tough. Uh, There are a lot of people I will thank at a later time, but I'm proud of it. The publisher is Kanaf. They have been great, wonderful, and I thank them also. And so this week we announced that the book is actually going to be published. It will come to pass on March 19th. But lucky for everyone with an earshot, it's actually available for pre-sale and pre-purchase now in print. There will be an ebook version of it. And for lots of you asking, there will be an audiobook. And in fact, I will be sitting in a studio for dozens of hours in January, recording personally the audiobook. So as you can see, the months and months of sitting in the studio to record this podcast was just prologue. So I have a lot to say in the book, but for now, let me just say, it's been a labor, (laughs) mostly a labor of love. So it's not only my family and my editors and my friends who have had to put up with me working on this book, but, you know, dear loyal podcast listener, you have too. You put up with my having to call in my question and answers when I took a week sabbatical at the Jersey Shore and Long Branch, and there were a couple of weeks where I didn't do sort of contemporary answers to news because I was working on the book. So thanks for putting up with that. If you're interested and you want to get it now, you can go to the following. It's a little bit of an awkward URL, but it's at bit.ly slash doingjusticebook. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash doingjusticebook. And you'll have the option of buying the book from any number of outlets and the audiobook and the ebook. I thought you'd like to hear about it, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Michael Lewis. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. 
I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.